0: Today, we continue a series of discussions about the basics of Marxism, a method for understanding and changing the world used by organizers, activists, and revolutionaries throughout modern history. We'll discuss the Marxist understanding of the so-called gig economy. More and more workers are forced to make ends meet driving for Lyft or Uber, delivering food or an ever-expanding number of irregular jobs. But far before smartphones and the internet, capitalism has long depended on precarious labor. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to be joined again by Professor Richard Wolff. He talks to us every Wednesday in this regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. The socialist program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program we appreciate and depend on all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show richard wolf is the co-founder of the organization democracy at work he's the author of many books the latest being the sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's r d w o l f Professor Wolf, welcome back.
1: Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here.
0: Let's start with a definition. Originally, gig, the word gig was coined by jazz musicians in the 1920s. It was short for the word engagement. It now refers to any aspect of performing such as assisting with performances and attending musical performances. But now we have the gig economy where instead of it being a short-term musical performance, these are workers, a big part of the U.S. workforce, who now depend on gig work, meaning it's not regular, it's not steady, it's short-term. More than one-third of U.S. workers, that's 36%, participate in the gig economy, either through their primary or secondary jobs. This number comprises around 59 million Americans. It's not just multiple job holders. For 29% of U.S. workers, their primary job is actually one of these irregular gig work arrangements. Globally, 52% of workers all around the world, 52% of all gig workers lost their jobs in 2020 and the beginning of 2021 because of COVID. Richard Wolff, as we said in our introduction The gig worker has become more and more a central part of the U.S. working class. More and more people, tens of millions, depend on gig work, on short-term irregular work, either as their primary or secondary, meaning supplementary income. Let's talk about this as a new phenomena. And also, as we said in the introduction, capital has always depended on some degree of irregular labor. But before I ask for your comments, I also want to mention one other fact. In 1960, 1960, 95 percent of the shoes worn by people in the United States were produced at factories in the United States. Many of them in smaller cities. Many of them associated with mid-sized cities or even rural areas. Today, in 2021. Only 5% of the shoes that we wear come from production facilities inside the United States. You can go through any commodity. This phenomena where the deindustrialization of America has contributed greatly to people having two, three gig jobs, but we also see it now as an emerging global phenomena All around the world, not just in the emerging world, but in all of the capitalist countries. Anyway, let's get your thoughts.
1: Well, let me begin by talking about a recognition of all of this in Europe, where the old term for the working class, the proletariat, has been changed. And what people there refer to is, instead of proletariat, the precariat, in order to underscore what you just said, the shrinking away of regular payroll jobs, where you are an employee, you come five days a week, you stay from eight to four or nine to five or whatever your time period is, and you have a wage or salary paid to you at the end of each week. The more or less standard evolution of the labor market in capitalism. Let's keep in mind that that was the way most people worked and earned their living. And that meant that that arrangement was the object of labor law and of labor regulations, both the legal kind and those that become the customary way of doing things. And lots of the protections that working class people found that they needed over time to survive in the face of all the things employers did to cut their wages, to damage their working conditions, etc. Workers fought hard for legal changes. For example, the eight-hour day, so they couldn't be made to work 12, 14, 16 hours a day, as was very common in the 18th and 19th centuries, and into the 20th century, and so on. All of these labor protections covered the employer-employee relationship, the payroll relationship, where you are a worker, steadily employed, certain number of hours every day of every week, etc., etc. All right. Once you switch away from that, Once you say that, no, 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 your work is now going to be sometimes when I need you. I'm the employer. I'll sign a contract with you for the job I want you to do over the next two and a half days. I will pay you for that, but then I will call you again if and when I need you. This gig economy, sometimes called in an ironic sardonic twist, a uh, sharing economy. This was invented and designed overwhelmingly by the employer. And it was imposed on the employee. And the reasons for that are crystal clear. Number one, just following from what I've said. If you're not a regular employee, then the employer can make a case that the protections that the law affords a regular employee don't apply if you are a contractually engaged, sometime gig worker person. You are then a contractual provider of a service rather than an employee, and this difference the employers gleefully pointed out, means that we don't have to observe the laws that cover only an employee relationship. So that was an enormous incentive. Here's another one: union contracts, which then became the custom, provided employees with certain benefits. For example, a minimum number of days off. Time and a half pay for time worked if you're working overtime. All kinds of benefits, we call them. Once you're not an employee, well, then you don't have to be given the benefits. That was the interpretation the employers made, and that was the interpretation they made stick. Well, once you understand that, then your old Marxian understanding kicks right in gig economy is just the latest twist in the endless effort of employers to squeeze more out of their workers while paying them less. It's not new, it's the built-in contradiction and tension and conflict between employer and employee, what the Marxist tradition calls the class struggle. In business school, prospective employers are taught, it's always important to conserve on your labor costs. That's the textbook language for this ugly process. Gig workers are a way to economize on your labor costs. You don't pay the worker when you don't need exactly what it is you want him to do. You can compress his or her work into the shortest possible time. You pay them for that time and not for any other. You can save on benefits It's also much easier to control the worker when you know he or she is going to be at a particular time, at a particular place, to do a particular task that can be monitored and controlled, rather than have the worker there in an ongoing way, nine to five each day. It's also a way to disorganize your workers instead of having them gathered together on the factory floor or in the office system or in the store together Hours a day with opportunities to chit chat, to go to the bathroom, to come and to go together in a shared vehicle and so on. No, no, no. Now the workers are all dispersed, doing their work at home, perhaps, or doing it in an automobile, or doing it in scattered locations. So you can keep the workers from getting together, which might lead them to share their experience, to form a union, to have a collective sense. What you're seeing in this transition is that when other ways of squeezing the working class weren't available, then you could go and do this. Convert the job from a payroll job to a gig job. And here are some minor ways it also works. You cannot tax an employer to cover unemployment compensation, if the worker is a gig worker. The unemployment system taxes employers for the regular employees they have to raise the funds that can carry those people through a period of unemployment so that they can continue to spend money even though they're unemployed and therefore keep the economy going. Well, you don't get to tax the employer if the worker isn't a regular employee, but is instead a gig worker. So there's an incentive for unscrupulous politicians and for businesses who don't want to be taxed to move to the gig system because it gets them out of paying that. It's likewise a situation in a number of other tax arrangements where there are advantages. Long story short, the business community saw an advantage it could gain in saving on its labor costs. In other words, squeezing the working class by shifting them from a regular employee status to a gig status. And my last point, it makes the worker a bit of a beggar. Many employers now do not tell people much in advance when they will be working, for how long they will be working, what they will be doing. Workers now have a new problem. They can't schedule taking care of their children, working out a shared schedule with his or her spouse, and so on, because they are at the mercy of the employer who doesn't need to tell them in advance often of what he wants and when he wants it. In other words, it tilts the balance of power and control and wealth in the direction, you guessed it, of the employer. So don't be fooled by any of the BS that has been pushed out. Employers understood, as they always do, that when you squeeze the working class, it's important to tell the story in a very different way so that they don't feel the squeezing quite as harshly Because you tell them a different story. Here's the one that the gig economy BS stressed. It is important for workers to have freedom to schedule their work when it's most convenient to them. And so rather than having to come to work eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, the way they always used to, We're giving them freedom to schedule their work when it more suits their desire. This is exactly the same kind of BS that was put out by the companies who used to make something called Hamburger Helper. This turned out to be a box that had no hamburger in it at all. It was the helper, which used to be called grain because you didn't have enough money to buy meat. You ate grain, and that's all this was, the grain that could take a quarter of a pound of hamburger meat and make six patties out of it because you were basically eating a piece of bread between two pieces of bread. This was explained to be something that the food producers did to help people save on cholesterol, you know, that substance in the meat, or to lower their calories. In other words, this product that responded to the lack of money people had so they couldn't afford meat was transformed by the BS into a gift, a service, a kindness done by the food producers. Well. That's the same BS that converts gig work without security, without regularity, without the protections of the law, without the benefits that go with regular jobs. Convert that into a gift given to the workers rather than another labor-saving ploy imposed on them by the employer.
0: Richard, the gig economy as you put it needs a fancy ribbon tied around it so people think they're getting something beneficial for them in addition to the points that you mentioned the social security tax which we're all you know compelled to pay the whole concept of social security as a program for people who are no longer able to work they're too old they want to retire or they need to retire during your lifetime you pay a tax, a social security tax. It's 7.5% of your income up to say about 125,000. After you make that much, you know, high income people or very very rich people no longer have to pay 7.5%. They only pay 7.5% up until that very low threshold, about I think it's 115,000. But when you're a gig worker, when you're an independent contractor, you're still liable for the employer tax and the employee tax. So while the employees put in 7.5%, the employer puts in 7.5%, and that's how Social Security is funded. So the bosses now no longer have to pay their 7.5% because you're not an employee. You're an independent contractor, you're an independent business person. But as such, you are liable for that other 7.5%. So you, the worker, now called an independent contractor, now working as a gig worker, your tax rate doubles for social security. So you pay all of the commitment for social security. And when you think about the significance and the significance in the calculations of business people about taxes, it's not secondary. I mean, Donald Trump spent his entire business career not paying taxes because it's such a lucrative part of the business. Or Jeff Bezos, true tax rate, while he became the richest man in the United States, was 1.9%. Warren Buffett's true tax rate, after all the loopholes, was 0.9%. Several of those years in the last 15, Jeff Bezos paid zero Income taxes. He even got the $4,000 child tax credit. I believe that was in 2009. And again, the whole thing is wrapped up, and the people are told look, this allows you to live your life the way you want to live it because now you're going to work when you want to work, not when the boss tells you when to work. But the fact of the matter is, if you're a worker, if you're part of the precariat or proletariat, that means you don't have another way to live except by selling your ability to work, your labor or labor power, to someone who's going to hire or buy that commodity, labor power. And if you don't have property, if you can't you know, clip coupons, if you're not living as Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett and Bill Gates live, which is to accumulate wealth really because of their holdings, because of their stocks and equities, if you can't do that you have to sell your labor and you have to hope someone will hire you. It's just that everything in this equation shifts so that the entire burden, the responsibility falls on you, the individual, and then the capitalist says, you're free.
1: Absolutely. And it's very important for people to understand that, especially because it's out of the limelight, the limelight of the media attention, that this shifting over to the gig economy could kind of happen under the radar or covered over with this veneer as if employers had suddenly decided to be different kinds of people and do lovely things for their employees to make their lives easier. Anyone who works and lives in this society knows that that's BS, but, you know, it's a little bit like hearing from McDonald's that they do it all for you when they make those unspeakable pieces of meat, etc., etc. I would like to add an example. California had a referendum a few months ago in which the issue was whether gig workers would be considered in legal ways as employees and therefore qualify for all of the legal protections that had been fought for and brought into the law over years and years, decades of labor struggles and strikes and efforts by the labor movement to get workers to be treated well. And the labor movement, of course, supported treating these gig workers as the workers they are and always were, and that therefore they deserve the protections of the law. By the way, this referendum was defeated. Uber, Lyft, and the other people who led the charge, cleverly advertised to many of the communities of color who have a hard time anyway with discrimination, who need the ability if they haven't, can't earn a decent living, which often this system doesn't allow them to do, to make a few extra bucks by driving an Uber car or a Lyft or something else like that as a supplement. And they were cleverly approached by advertising that suggested that they wouldn't have that option anymore if the protections of the law were in fact extended. This is a form of using one part of the working class that is the victim of discrimination to undercut the benefits of the other part of the working class that was able, at least for a variety of reasons, to get some worker protection. It's an awful spectacle to watch, and it further divides the labor movement along racial lines, skill level lines. It's an awful exercise in a minority, the employers, driving home low incomes. And splits often with racial implications onto the working class. It's a very ugly spectacle, only made worse by the lame efforts of the public relations firms that are hired to put a face that is not horrific on a process of gig economy development that is as ugly as the class struggle gets.
0: The most important thing for workers is to be able to come together and to build solidarity with each other, to show solidarity. And as you said, Richard, and this certainly was part of Marx's and Engels calculations, was that the working class, when it was brought together under one roof in a single factory, was no longer simply a victim class. Yes, it was a victim in the sense that it was horribly exploited, Children were hired and exploited even additionally. Workers worked long, long hours with very low pay. So workers were super exploited and as a consequence of victim. But Marx also made the point, and this was key to the Marxist concept, was that the workers were not only victims, but they were a power, a new class power and that their power, at least in part, derived from their strategic position in the productive process because they were at the point of production. And by being together, working together, associating together, forming organizations, elementary organizations like mutual aid or then later trade unions, by coming together as a class, forming class consciousness, first trade union consciousness and then class consciousness, that the workers would not simply be victims, but in fact, be able, capable to take over the factory and as a consequence, take over society. Marx actually makes the point in the manifesto that the bourgeoisie above all else produces its own grave diggers, as Marx put it, meaning the class that will end capitalism. Now, the strategic leverage of workers at the point of production starts to starts to weaken as work is dispersed, as work takes place in smaller and decentralized areas, as work is conducted remotely, as work is conducted irregularly. And for some, I know within the left, there's this basic assumption that the core concept of Marx, that the proletariat would in fact be the class that would end capitalism and recreate, reorganize society on a socialist basis, that it's out of date, that it's quaint, that modern capital sort of beat the proletariat by all of these different tricks. Now, I can tell you as an organizer in labor, also with the American Federation of Teachers at NYU in the 1990s, where the workers in that union did not have to pay dues. You could get all the benefits of being in the union, but you didn't have to pay dues. It was an open shop. And as a consequence, we were constantly having to beg workers to pay their fair share, to pay the dues. Otherwise, we couldn't really organize. We would just constantly be sort of soliciting to keep the union alive. And in that struggle, even though the workforce was diverse, the Black and the Latino workers, the poorest paid workers at NYU, were the first ones to pay their dues, And it was usually the more affluent workers who said, oh, I just don't have the money to pay the dues. And we had to find all of these different creative methods where finally the working class, in spite of what seems to be an impossible problem, you can get something without having to pay for it. And if you have weak consciousness, you don't have to. By virtue of our organizing, we actually united the labor force such that NYU, in spite of its extreme wealth, was forced to capitulate, and finally, we won a closed shop. Now, that's a small victory, a closed shop, but it's an indicator of how workers, in spite of a changed or more difficult or less favorable environment, can still and will organize and can organize in a way that's creative enough to win.
1: Go ahead. Yeah, I think another example, I think, makes a similar point. I was reminded of it when you mentioned children. Here's the veneer of kindness of the employer that was tried a hundred years ago when we had in the United States child labor. Kids as young as five and six years of age were hired to work in factories, to work in offices, to work in stores, and ruthlessly exploited, taking advantage of their age, sexual exploitation, just a horrible story ugly as you could imagine. What was the veneer put on by the BS produced by employers? Here's how it went. Well, these are children from very poor families, you see, and these poor families make a little extra to be a little less poor by being able to sell the labor of their younger children. And we, the employers, are helping poor families by giving some income to their children. And if you don't let us hire those children, well then those poor families you will see will suffer the loss of the income that their child labor might have gotten for them. I mean, it is as grotesque as you could imagine, and that's all it ever was. And by the way, the employers eventually lost it. That is, the mass of people rose up in the United States and won the abolition of child labor. Laws passed making it illegal to hire anyone under the age, and it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but usually around 16 years of age, give or take. Those laws were passed because the working class understood that the BS about how the employer was helping the poor family's children was the kind of ugly veneer that they wanted nothing to do with. And my hope is, and my expectation is, the whole gig economy will go the same way that child labor is. Oh no you don't. An aroused working class will say, you're not going to take away the protections of the law, the benefits we've won over the years in countless contracts that we had to fight for. You're not going to get away with this kind of abuse. We're not going to let you. We're going to make it as illegal to do to us via gig work what you tried to do and did get away with for a while with child labor. That's the model I think people should have in their minds when they think about the sharing economy, or any other crude euphemism for what is an ugly chapter of the class struggle.
0: Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F dot com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow, Thursday, with our segment called The Real Story. Our special guest is Professor Gerald Horn. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.